All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. This is Mill Snell, and I'm joined by Bill D'Alessandro and Michael Girdley, my co-host. We are going to sit down and have a chat with a fantastic guest today. Acquisitions Anonymous is a podcast about small business M&A, and we typically discuss at least two. uh, Usually, we only have time for two potential acquisitions. So these are companies that are for sale or they've been for sale recently. We have some information about them and we underwrite the deal. The origin of this came about because both Michael and Bill and I all like having these conversations and we banter and underwrite deals. And we thought, hey, we should maybe hit record at some point because these are fun conversations. So welcome back. We're glad you're here. And um, I'm going to intro Alex Bridgman, our guest from the Think Like an Owner podcast. So uh, we, we've we been getting schooled on the nuances of podcasting before we hit record. But Alex, really glad you're here, man. Tell us a little bit about you and Think Like an Owner and uh, and, and give us your, your spiel. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's funny, I've interviewed two out of the three of you on my podcast. So Mills, you're next oh. here in a few months. Um, but it's been a it was a fun project for me just to start and try to meet people who are buying and owning small companies and running them well and improving them and growing them and the podcast it's a fun way to just meet those people um in a way that because i I enjoyed networking but going one-to-one is hard if you're just trying to explore this new area and so creating a podcast was a great way to just find people and if they liked it they would reach out and that was fun and i started it because i didn't find any podcasts that talked about the smb world or the world of search funds, or anyone who is buying something that was worth less than $20 million. Um, so seeing your podcast and being on it is exciting, because it's it's fun to see all these other SMB-style podcasts. Um, Let's Buy a Business, Acquisitions Anonymous, uh, Owned and Operated. And there's, a, there's a ton of good podcasts that are coming out, everyone with a different style and flavor. So I've really enjoyed getting to see the, the space flourish a little bit more. And um, so I'm excited to be a part of it. Man, we're so glad you're here. Well, thanks for joining us. You, you've talked to a lot of folks who have underwrote deals, either done them or are still in the process of trying to find one. So you have to just share all your imminent knowledge with us. All right, Girdley, you're going to do an intro for us on our sponsor, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're honored today to be sponsored once again by uh, tinyacquisitions.com. Um, so I get the honor of doing a live read for them. Um, and thanks to them for helping us deal with all the expenses. We get this all professionally edited and everything. So the sponsors are awesome to help us do that. And Tiny Acquisitions is sponsoring today's episode. Uh, their uh, message is that every day, some developer you've never heard of creates a business that has high earning potential, but it gets abandoned because they don't have the marketing abilities that you have. The tech is all there. All you have to do is sell it. Uh, and tinyacquisitions.com is home to thousands of online businesses that sell for under $5,000. With a one-click buy model, you have the option to buy this business and be ready to generate cash in less than 24 hours. Go to tinyacquisitions.com to acquire business and start cash flowing today. So thanks again to Tiny Acquisitions. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate your support. All right, Bill, I believe you have our first deal. This was actually listeners submitted from two different folks. And... um, we have two interesting ones today, but we're going to start with one that's a little bit novel. Bill, you got this one? Yep. Um, so we are going to talk today about minifigureland.com. And we have not signed an NDI on this. They have made it public that they're for sale. We found them on Biz Buy Sell. Uh, you should be able to see my screen if you are watching us on YouTube. We share the screen. Um, so minifigureland.com specializes in selling high quality Lego minifigure toys and collectibles. 
Um, it's a fun business to own with huge growth potential. Uh, they've been around since 2013, and they're a top seller of Lego minifigures on eBay and Amazon. There are over 11,000 different little Lego minifigure models and characters. They have Minifigure Land has the most listings in its market on Amazon. Uh, and they say they get a huge ex opportunity to expand into selling more different types of minifigures. Um, and this, if you are ever going to go to our YouTube, I would recommend it as today because you get to see the pictures of all of these little Lego men. These are these are not kind of made of Legos. These are like the little construction men or superheroes or, you know, sword fighting guys that come in Lego sets. You know, you can kind of move their arms and their legs. Uh, they're like the same guys that star in the Lego movie, uh, if you guys have ever seen that. OK, so minifigureland.com. Uh, they have 1.6, sorry, they're asking $1.6 million. They have cash flow of $925,000 on gross revenue of 5.3 million. So pretty good margins, about 25%, 20% margins ish. Uh, although they say their EBITDA is 524,000 and their cash flow is 925,000. So I definitely like to understand the Delta between those. Their inventory, they're carrying $300,000 of inventory of little Lego minifigures, which I would just love to see all in one place. Um, and they've been around since 2013. They're located in Santa Ana, California. And because these are all itty bitty Lego figures, they do this all out of 400 square feet mm. in Santa Ana, California. Um, they say they lease month to month. I would be willing to bet you dollars to donuts this is a storage unit. It's a 20 by 20 storage <laughs> unit, makes 400, 400 square feet. It's on a month to month lease. I'm sure it's a storage unit, uh, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, it says currently they're one of the top three sellers on Amazon in the Lego minifigure market. Uh, they're branching out into new ideas that separate them from other sellers of Lego minifigures. They say their growth as a Lego reseller could be five to 10 times their current size. And they're suggesting that you expand into other Lego branded things, not just minifigures. I assume that means they've got a distribution license with Lego and can buy directly, which is probably not easy to get, uh, being that I bet Lego is one of those brands that really protects their distribution. So there could be a really interesting opportunity here to just buy more things from the Lego catalog and sell them on Amazon or eBay, uh, etc. Uh, they say they're willing to stick around for 60 days and carry up to 10% of the purchase price uh, in a seller note, and they are departing to focus on other business ventures. So if you go to their website, minifigureland.com, you'll see a great uh, portrait shot of a bunch of their Lego minifigures. What's interesting to note is they do not sell anything at all on minifigureland.com. It just is uh, very prominent links to their eBay and Amazon stores. Um, and if you go to Amazon, you'll see little baby Yoda, you'll see little Iron Man, you'll see ninjas, you'll see guy from Jurassic Park, you'll see Harley Quinn from DC Comics, you'll see Frozen, you'll see, I mean, anything you could ever possibly imagine. There are, as I mentioned, the listing 11,000 different little Lego minifigure guys. Uh, so pretty neat business, um, especially if you're into Legos. What do you guys think about, about minifigure land? Man, this is one of the more unique e-commerce businesses I've seen. I, you know, you guys know I don't really love e-com. Uh, Bill makes it look easy, and I get scared to death of it. But I, I did grow up playing with Legos. But I mean, guys, this is a lot of freaking Lego yeah. figurines <laughs> to get six million dollars in revenue. I mean, I know these things aren't selling for like a dollar, but in some of the information, I mean, they they almost talk about it. It's almost to me akin to or very similar to art collection or like sneaker collection 
where there's this arbitrage play where they, and I read some of the material, one of our listeners submitted some more detailed information and the owners of this business are constantly adjusting pricing, which is very cool, but also scares me, right? It's like, it's like that watch business we talked about in the early days. Like somebody comes in and is like, Hey, you want to buy some of my Lego figures? And you have to know which ones are super rare and really valuable. And you can arbitrage. Like I bought, I bought this Lego Yoda for $5 and I'm about to sell it for 50. Yeah. I would get hosed, right? I would be underwater because I'd be like, that thing's a piece of garbage. <laughs> and and there's 11,000 that you need to know or at least have some familiarity with. Uh, that's a that's an edge that the current owners have that buyer business fit. I would not have that level of specific insight. Yeah, this, feel, this feels to me like a market like um, being a Beanie Baby dealer or being a Nike dealer, right? So like if you end up with a partner and Lego's proven so far to be pretty good at it, if you prove if you if you end up with a partner like them who's going to take care of you as a retailer, like Nike takes care of its 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 high end retailers, right? Doing these drops, limited runs, all that kind of stuff, you're going to be fine. The problem is if it later on Lego decides to beanie baby you, and you guys all know what happened to beanie babies, right? They overproduced, they become less scarce, they they killed the golden goose. Yeah, that's the big risk. And the most interesting thing about this, it all comes down to, to me, can you trust Lego or not, not to run you out of business or ruin your business for you by getting greedy? Yep. All right. As resident e-commerce guy, I freaking love this one. I think it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So like when you think about e-com, right, what do you want for e-com? You want it to be small, light, and indestructible. Right. These things weigh like an ounce a piece. You can ship these first class mail. It'll cost you two bucks to ship them anywhere in the United States. They're completely indestructible. Like you could put it in a padded envelope, you know, be there in two, two or three days anywhere in, in America. They're selling them rough for roughly, it looks like 10 bucks on Amazon. They've got some price points around $7.95. So Mills, to your point, they these guys probably moved about half a million individual Lego figures over the last year. So there's definitely a operations and logistics side to this. Um, You're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of transactions. So this is the one negative. You're doing a lot of transactions, which means every, you know, every transaction, if 1% of your transactions lead to a customer service issue, you know, you're doing a lot of customer service. If 1% of them lead to a chargeback, you're dealing with a lot of chargebacks or 1% of them lead to a lost package. You got a lot of lost packages. So Hmm. all else being equal, in e-com, you want fewer orders to do the same amount of revenue. So these guys are on the wrong side of that. They're doing half a million orders a year to make half a million dollars in revenue. Uh, although their margins are pretty good. They think they're cash flowing a million bucks on five million of, of sales, uh, which tells me, you know, th- there must be actually some whole, a wholesale pricing gap where they're buying it from Lego for two or three dollars and they're selling it, selling it for 10. So the other thing I notice about this thing that I love, you know, when I look at a business to buy, I like to go, where do they suck? Like, what are they not doing right at all? And these guys, I think what they've done is they've probably dialed in the supply chain. They've got access to 11,000 Lego figurines. And I think they really, I don't have any confidential information on this, but this looks to be an eBay business, period. Because if you go to their Amazon listing, they've only got like 17 Amazon listings. And their eBay page is super built out. They've got 15,000 reviews, uh, seller reviews on eBay. So uh, what I think this is, is basically an overgrown eBay business. They do no dot-com sales and they do basically no Amazon sales. So you could buy this business and blow it. Just, just getting all the SKUs they have on eBay 
on Amazon would probably double this business like overnight. And so that's not even hard. That's just operations, right? Organizing all the photos, getting everything uploaded, et cetera. And then you could, they've also got, if you go to their website, they've got this little area called instructions where they've got a little button that shows you all of the instructions for all of these little Lego figures. So you could build out a content site for Lego. Like this would rank extremely well. You could build out all this Lego content where you're just basically putting online all these instruction manuals and selling all the little dudes on the website. Uh, You could explode this business just by doing e-com best practices and taking the supply chain this guy's already got because he has his little eBay business and turning this into a real omni-channel e-com brand. And you wouldn't even have to do advertising because you would actually rank. Like this is keyword driven. Like I'm not like scrolling through Facebook and you're like, oh, you know what? I want a mini Indiana Jones Lego guy, right? <laughs> but if I got the little, the, if I got a son who has like the Indiana Jones kit and I, he lost the guy, I, it's very keyword driven, right? Lego, Indiana Jones, like it's right there and you could probably rank for it. I think there's a ton of low hanging fruit in this business. To your point about the the just huge amount of SKUs, like the the eleven thousand different tiny Lego figurines, their inventory was three hundred thousand, which is something like eight months worth of inventory. Do you think that's simply just because they have so many different kinds of figurines, or do you think there's something else going on? Yeah, that that's the other downside of this business is ton of SKUs, ton of orders. You know, you're going to have to have a couple in stock. I mean, that being said, three hundred thousand dollars on five. 0.5 million in sales is not a crazy amount of inventory, right? And the other thing that's great about this inventory that. is it it never goes bad, right? I mean, it's not like it spoils or expires. You know, it's it's little Lego guys. They can sit there. So yeah, I mean, that's a bummer. Like, I, I think you would have to, I'd love to see what goes on in that 400, 400 square feet storage unit, but they've got to have, I would think they got to have pretty good process to like bag and tag and barcode all these things on the way. Like you could have these machines that bag them all like in little zip bags and print a barcode on them. And then you could pretty, pretty soon it's just you're scanning barcodes and putting things in boxes and you don't even know what's in the bag. You know, if you really systematize this, I, I think you could like heavily automate this business uh, and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And to that inventory point too, there's a, uh, there was a paper I read a while ago that talked about the returns from owning Legos and the returns were like seven to 10% annually of the last 20 or 30 years. So I wonder if there's a, to your point of inventory not going bad, not only does it not go bad, but some of the pieces will increase in value. Maybe in, maybe Mills, that's what you're talking about earlier with them adjusting prices a lot. Perhaps they're just responding to natural appreciation in some of their inventory. Yeah, and I think I think that they don't even necessarily. I mean, it looks like you know, looking on their eBay, they definitely have some kind of inroad where they're buying packaged products, right? And they're probably getting those hopefully from Lego. It would seem. If not, then You'd wonder, like, is there a way, not even that Lego could uh, compete with you, but is there a way that they could shut you down in some way, shape, or form? Probably not, but it just, they could make your life very difficult. I think a lot of their, a lot of their inventory, though, is procured probably in more creative ways. You know, like, if, you know, Han Solo, right, from like a Lego set years and years ago, right, or whatever it is, right, there's rare, there's rare figurines they have a way where they're going to try and find those. They're going to procure them in some creative way. My guess is that, that that's what's happening. And and so they have their finger on the pulse of the supply and demand, and that's why they're adjusting pricing. I don't think it's all just, hey, we just call Lego and they send us these things. Mm. Because I think there is a lot of it that is old, that's you know nostalgic or novelty-driven. 
and scarce, and that that drives pricing. That's a very, great point. Very, yeah, very akin to the dynamics of owning like a card shop business. So I have a friend that owns four of those in the Dallas area, and I wouldn't get into that business unless I was like him and total card nerd. Like he just loves yep. it. Mm-hmm. Like baseball One cards? One thing that's interesting about this, yeah, baseball cards. Isn't that what you were saying, Gurdley? Yeah, baseball, baseball cards. cards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to ask you about like, why wouldn't you get into a baseball card business? So I think it's a good business. I think it is one of those businesses where you're having to really understand the market. As an example, like we looked at a, a, a secondhand watch dealer business, like a high-end watch dealer business a few months ago, had a lot of inventory, but it's clearly like the sales process of selling that thing is getting somebody else excited about that particular watch, knowing all the details about it. Like being somebody that just sits up and reads the watch forums on the weekends, like you want to be that kind of person if you're going to be in a business like this, right? Like you, or you need to have the right staff that's going to be that kind of nerd to where you're like, oh, well, like, let me tell you what happened this week because, you know, Ichiro hit a home run. Therefore, like, this is going to change. And I know that because I have on my phone an app that tells me what's happening in all the secondhand markets for cards all the time. So, like, that person is just living and breathing that stuff. And, you know, you end up only winning and only doing really well in this market if you have somebody like that on the staff. Yeah, it didn't occur to me that perhaps they're going to like Lego shows, right? Where guys are yeah. at tables and they're like buy out his whole inventory. So if if the supply chain for this was more like that, this would scare me a lot more. My initial assumption was that they kind of had open order with Lego. I mean, to me, that would be the asset of this business, right? If they've got a, a account with Lego, they're buying, they they don't have to worry about where these figurines come from. They just need to, and you know, another thing I've seen, by the way, in small businesses is they might have not have the working capital to keep all 11,000 Lego figurines in stock. So it could be that you could grow this business just by keeping more things in stock by, you know, saturating that Lego catalog. So if they have that Lego relationship, I think this is a freaking slam dunk because all you got to do is be the bridge between the Lego catalog and good e-commerce best practices. If this is more like Gurley was talking about collecting cards from, or Lego guys from Lego shows. This is that's a whole different thing. That's a hobby business. Yeah. Go ahead, Alex. This is, this is a good one. This is an interesting one. Um, <laughs> well, anything else on this one before we shift to to another kind of interesting and unique one? It may I may have missed it in Bill's epic e-commerce rant. By the way, that needs to be put on <laughs> social media somewhere. But the thing that surprises me in terms of their their D 2 C channel that they're not taking advantage of at all would be some sort of subscription model with folks who should be paying them $50 a month and they get a, a bag of these little figurines. And sometimes you get, you know, you get the $10,000 one and sometimes you get the $10 one. Like, it just seems like there's so many more opportunities to go to market rather than just playing the arbitrage slap stuff up on Amazon eBay game that they're doing right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so much here. Assuming, assuming they have the relationship with Lego and they can actually get this stuff reliably, there is so much here. And if you are listening to this and want to buy it, I would love to back you. <laughs> <laughs> so too small, right, for Elements brands, which I feel like is a helpful point, right? Like we we like some of these deals, but we're not pursuing them. And I think the reasons why are, are fascinating. Yeah, well, so, Bill, wants to, Bill wants to own his brands, right? This, is the, yeah. this doesn't check that box, right? Yeah, so not too small for us. I mean, this is doing nearly a million cash flow. We would definitely do this do this deal. The reason this is not a, a fit for us at Elements Brands is we specifically, uh, Mills, as you said, we like to own our brand. So this, these guys resell Lego stuff. Um, so that makes it not a fit for us. Also, we only do kind of consumable CPG. So this is kind of not in our category. This would be outside of our mandate uh, at Elements Brands. But I, 
does not make us a, a bad business at all. I think it's a super interesting business pending some of the questions. You would stroke raised. a check though, personally, if, if, yes. if you had the right, if you had the right operator. Yes, exactly. Bill Delisandro right, slinging dollars. There you go. <laughs> that was cool. All right, let's switch. We have, we have a, we have another fun deal. Uh, Michael, you're going to, you're going to go over this one. Alex brought this one so uh, he can, he can help illuminate it for us. That's great. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this is a, a buy, biz, sell listing. Uh, you guys, by the way, you can tell I'm old. Look how big my cursor is. <laughs> um, so this one's called Livestock Publication. It's uh, out in the mountain region. Uh, no asking price defined. So uh, optimism pays, I guess, for these guys. Uh, it cash flows $450,000 a year on about $2 million in gross revenue. EBITDA matches cash flow. Er so EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So that's a good sign about the, the non-high level of capital that a business like this would require. They have no furnitures, fixtures, equipment, no inventory, and they are infinitely old. So don't know when it was established. So the company itself is one of the nation's leading sources for livestock industry news. So livestock like cattle, uh, sheep. What else is livestock? Bison. Things on hooves. Horses. Subscribers can choose weekly home delivery and or online access. In 2020, revenue was generated from advertising, 83%, subscriptions, 13%, online ads, 3%, and other sources, 1%. The company primarily differentiates itself on its editorial content, as well as having the largest paid circulation of any competition. The company reaches a higher qualified, better quality reader, yielding proven results, having relied on the company, blah, blah, blah. And they have 10 plus people on these team that are all non-union. That's a really interesting thing to add about the non-union. Um, total <laughs> circulation approached 10,000, approaches 10,000, online subscribers number over 1,000, and online viewership is 20,000 per month. They have strong client relationships. They have a loyal advertiser base and subscriber base. The top five customers in 2020, all advertisers have been with the company an average of 30 years each, and the average reader has subscribed to the company for 13 plus years. Oh my goodness. They serve advertisers and readers nationwide, and they have a concentration in the Intermountain West and Western Plains region. So Intermountain West is like Idaho, Wyoming, stuff like that, uh, Oregon. Cool. What else do we see here? There's a broker, blah, blah, blah. It's out of generational equity. Uh, and that's it. It's my bestseller listing around that. What do we think about this particular livestock publication? So first of all, I love print publishing. I'm a huge nerd for anything that comes out in print. So that's what was interesting to me about this one. I was looking for just any kind of media businesses on Biz by Sell and um, see if there's anything interesting in print. This was really interesting because they claim to be at least the leading source for livestock industry news, which is really interesting because from that position, especially since they've been around for clearly a long time, if some there's no you know established date, but if they've had customers or advertisers for 30 plus years, they've been around for a long time. From that standpoint, it's interesting because you might have this you know, incumbent brand that's been around and been in households of livestock you know, business owners for a long time, which is exciting. The drawback looking at it is subscriptions only being 13% of their revenue. If you break that down from $2 million in gross revenue. And then by 10,000 circulation, folks are average, averaging paying 26 bucks a year. So they either haven't found a good way to monetize or they're under monetizing. My thought was, if you were going to be the leading source for 
news on a particular industry, there has to be some business case for a business to use either better data about their industry or better news that they might be willing to pay for. And you could create a product around that, given that you're already the leading brand in their minds. That might be, you already have kind of an audience that you could build on pretty quickly, especially if your average reader has been there around for 13 years or so. The concern is that they just haven't figured out a way to do that, or there's not a way to do that. Um, another concern would just be if this is a, just like industry dynamics, it's probably growing, you know, two to 4% a year something like that in terms of just livestock as an industry. So I'd be curious what the average, you know, age of a business owner in the industry is if there's, you know, new generations coming in that are excited about the industry, um, who are looking for more data or more ways to improve their business um, that could be good customers, or if it's just this is a company that has just reached its ceiling and has not found any effective way. So I think there's potential growth here, but I'd have to be really confident in the industry itself to to buy it. That's interesting that you say that, Alex. So I I look at it and I don't I think maybe we're we're thinking something similar, but the advertising dependency right now doesn't scare me on the business. And the lack of a subscription base doesn't it wouldn't prevent me from like digging further into this. Which is kind of what you're saying, right? You're just saying, hey, growth opportunity would be the availability of providing premium content and justifying a more subscription base of revenue. Right. Yeah. Could, is there a way to become the Bloomberg for the livestock industry and provide not only better editorial, but more widespread editorial that's maybe more up to date with news or just just reinvesting more in that and then creating some sort of data product? Uh, would be kind of interesting but yeah on the surface like advertising subscription that doesn't make me nervous it just to me it makes it it presents perhaps a growth opportunity that could be exciting yeah yeah i agree i think the interesting parallel here and i interviewed a gentleman who founded the business just three or four years ago is in the freight space and they're exactly what you guys are talking about it's called freight waves based out of chattanooga and they really have two things they have their media arm and then they have their business so they're selling people access to the data that they're having. And then the media arm writes articles about it and provides input to people in the freight space in particular. And the genius about it is basically the businesses have like a huge amount of synergy. So they, in the end, they see themselves as a SaaS business with negative customer acquisition costs, negative CAC, because the thing pays for itself. Super, super duper interesting, super duper powerful. And part, one of his thesis, the, the founder of it, um, was that you could do this again and again in multiple other big industries. And I think this is one of them. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. I'm going to have, I had, I already recorded an episode with Craig Fuller, the, the founder of Freight Waves. It's coming out in two weeks. So I'm, it's very funny that you mentioned that. But what, one thing that he talked about too that was interesting was they used their, like you were saying, with the synergies going back and forth between their business lines, the media side, they use their data product within their media articles, their editorial. So they reference their data product throughout all of their media. So not only is their as their business becomes more widespread and more people see it, but as you read through their articles, you're constantly being pointed to other products that Freewave sells. And there definitely could be that opportunity for something like this. The interesting thing about freight waves is the companies in the freight and logistics industries are huge companies. And so their ability to pay huge amounts of money for data and other information is tremendous. And I I just don't know what that is for the livestock industry. It could be maybe the average business in the life, maybe the average livestock 
business. I don't know what it would be, but maybe it's substantially lower such that you can't have that same, there's not that same pricing power that's embedded with this. I would, I would just, I just don't know about the livestock industry. So I did, that would be my, that'd be my next piece of research. There's a guy as another parallel business who, who does this for basically this, but for the agriculture industry. So like corn and soybean growers, and supposedly it's like a $20 million a year business printing $18 million a year in cash. Um, it's just like one guy in Iowa or something who was a former Wall Street analyst and now just writes a weekly newsletter on happenings in, in the ag stuff. So yeah, I mean, it, this may not be as big as ag, but epic. like it's pretty epic, pretty epic opportunity if done right, I think. I have looked at a, a traditional print business that ended up kind of growing to a point where it was um, it was niche like this, very, very specific. And they, they grew and they were doing five or six million in EBITDA. And they had a conference arm and had a bunch of different things that kind of grew out of it. But it was it was actually free, no subscription. But they it was it was all advertising driven. Alex, do you know how does this company how is their content generated? Uh, with ten people, it's likely that they have two to four re- uh, writers on staff who write mostly editorial. Perhaps there's there's probably a lot of just user submitted content as well, so you can just submit a you know letter to the the editor or something like that. Or they probably just get stories from their readers. Or if a reader has some you know big event in their business that they want to talk about, they might reach out and want to create a story off of it. But with 10 people, there probably are quite a few, not quite a few, but there's probably a handful of writers on yeah. staff who are writing their own content. That, that's the only thing that scares me, you know, with a business like this is if, if I buy it, right, and I have captive content creation and copywriting and editorial and the, you know, six months after close, right, I, I, my staff decides, hey, you know what, we really like the other guy and we don't want to work for you or it's time for us to retire and surprise, you know, you thought I was going to be here for five years and I'm not. I can't write for this magazine. You know, it's not like I'm a subject matter expert. And so I think what you see is a lot of a lot of these niche trade publications, they outsource a lot of their copywriting to not necessarily like a ghostwriter, right? But somebody who can go and say, hey, we're going to go do a deep dive on some generic things that apply to multiple industries. And then we're going to rely on industry specific folks or user generated content or whatever it may be. Some of the things you mentioned for like, you know, the the trends of the season, right? Or the, you know, new, you know, new tools, right? New equipment, um, new breeding techniques, like whatever the things are that are interesting to breeders. I mean, those are those are important things. And and I, I would imagine like this magazine probably gets read. It's probably on every livestock owner's coffee table, you know what I mean? Or in their bathroom or wherever. I, I like that element of it. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, we talked we talked a lot about if you bought this business, how would you kind of expand it into data and outside of the publication? I would think about it, you know, the other way. If you are a strategic acquirer, if you have any business that is at all related to livestock, especially in the Mountain West, you should buy this right away because it's probably not going to decline. It's been around a long time. It seems very sticky. So if you could pay four times EBITDA for it and it doesn't grow at all, it, that's a 25% return, even if you don't use any debt at all. And then you've got basically a free option on how can I use this to push and promote the thing that I'm already selling? You know, or maybe you use it to, you probably got a ton of relationships in the industry and you're looking for a place to park cash that your, your other livestock centric business is throwing off. And you could start to build a, a portfolio 
in the livestock industry and having a media arm for any conglomerate is like the slam dunk crown jewel. So if I had, if I own any business in livestock, I'd be looking hard at this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that negative CAC that Gurdley was talking about, where if you are already in this business, you can now effectively buy advertising that pays for itself. And instead of the, like the freightways model of the media paying or marketing for the data product. Now you're this business, this media business just markets for your manu- or your not manufacturing, but your business. That's a separate entity, but you can, you can tie it in pretty closely and you can create stuff like because I don't think, I'm not sure that they didn't mention anything about podcasts, but you could create podcasts or other YouTube channels on top of this too that could bring in your company name a lot more too. Mm-hmm. Alex, this kind of raises a question for me that, that's specific to you. Are you looking, uh, you, you run a podcast and you interview a lot of folks in the SMB space. Are you looking for a business to buy for yourself? Or are you looking to deploy capital and invest in folks who are buying businesses, how do you kind of fit within the ecosystem in addition to being a content provider and, and educating folks about the space? Yeah, I use, my, I use the podcast as my effective business so far. And then there's another business and maybe a second one that I'll put together at some point over the next year or so, um, which I'm excited about. So I, I view it more as I'll, I'll build within the Think Like an Owner ecosystem and then if there is a business that's interesting, like like this is like really interesting, this livestock in terms of just like if, if I think of my core competency of like it's I think I've gotten decent at podcasting. There's some other media expertise I can develop over time. Um, getting to know Craig Fuller and Freight Waves would be a good way to to work on that. But I think if that becomes more of an expertise, then acquiring these media brands over the next five or 10 years could be a really interesting path. Um, especially if Think Like an Owner becomes a lot more streamlined and becomes a little bit more of an effective effective business so far. It's a, yeah, that's a, that, I, lo- I like it. How can people stay in touch with you, Alex? Any any kind of blurb that you want to give about the podcast or about where people can find you and how how they can follow along? I'm I'm sure most of our audience does, but for those for those who don't, yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to follow what I'm working on um, at a e Bridgman, and then I have a email newsletter that I've I paused for quite a while, but I I have I released a new newsletter two weeks ago, and then I have another one coming out on Sunday. So I'm trying to pick up that habit a little better as I as it dropped off pretty heavily. But you can subscribe to that at my website, alexbridgman.com, or just send me an email and reach out at alex.e.bridgman at gmail, and we can we can chat. Good, That's awesome. Well, thanks. And thanks and again Mills, for being here. And, yep. Thanks again to our sponsor, tinyacquisitions.com. So they paid for paid for editing this week. We're very grateful. Yeah. All right. Anything else anybody has before we sign off? No, Alex, you were awesome. Thanks. These were really cool to talk about. Thanks for being here. And uh, it's fun to be on the other side because you were the first interviewer that I got to do. You, I was That was my first podcast guest ever. So I was excited to have you on today. Yeah, you killed it. That was fun. You should do it again soon. <laughs> well, and so funny anecdote for you guys. I, I hope it's okay to share this, but I tried to recruit Alex at the end of the podcast when he interviewed me. I was like, do you want to come to San Antonio? And uh, he <laughs> smartly said no. <laughs> Show everybody your shirt, I would be Michael. Really... I don't think you've shown it yet. Yeah, uh, San Antonio versus everybody. I so now, now, now everybody has to go to YouTube to see this. <laughs> All right, well, my wife's out to visit. <laughs> Okay. I would love to visit you in San Antonio, though, and interview you at a Chili's. And I, it could be fun because you could talk about why you love the business of Chili's and then just sidetrack into whatever other business stuff you want to chat about. But that could be really fun. I could, 
I can just explain to you how awesome it is that they microwave every dish. <laughs> it's it's a unique well, model. Hey, we'll just order steaks. If you're, if you're a uh, if you're a capitalist, you really appreciate the chilies. <laughs> All right. On that note, thanks everybody, and we'll see you again next week. Bye.